Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Third Impact Anime Podcast. My name is Sully, and with us we have two special guests. We have returning guest Helen McCarthy, and we have our new guest, uh, Darren John Ashmore. So if you have listened to our podcast before, you know we've spoken to Helen previously. Uh, she is one of the most important anime scholars working in the field right now. She, has, she wrote the first English-language book on anime in 1993. She is a Miyazaki scholar, a Tezuka scholar. She's published numerous books on anime in general, uh, and Tezuka and Miyazaki. She co-edited the Anime Encyclopedia, which is now in its third, fourth edition, third edition. I think you were talking about last time, if we go into a fourth edition, we'd have to, you'd have to do some, uh, some magic there in order to make sure you fit literally everything into it. And we also have Darren John Ashmore, who is the co-editor of the book we're going to be talking about this time. Darren got his PhD in cultural anthropology from the University of Sheffield, focusing on traditional Japanese theater and specializing in puppetry. Darren also researches literature, theater, and film from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, which is most of the Showa period in Japan. And he is currently the head of Japan studies at Yamanashi Gakuin University. So... Uh, Darren, welcome to the show. We have you and Helen on to talk about your new book, uh, Leiji Matsumoto from McFarlane Books, and we've previously spoken to Tim Eldridge and Ed Hoff, but you guys were the co-editors and also had contributed some pieces, and we're here today to talk about what it took to make the book and why you think this book needed to come to print in the first place. So, Helen, welcome back, and Darren, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, I, I think it's 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 very true that for both of us, this book has been a passion project. But it originated with Darren, uh, so perhaps it's 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 the best thing if he talks a little bit about the original idea, which began what four years ago when you were up in Akita. Helen is right. The project started a long time ago. It hit one day when I was working for Akita International University, about the time that. Helen was guesting up at the university and as a consequence of uh, a chat between her and my students and a few bits and pieces said to Matsumoto Reiji himself, it started ticking over in my head that whilst Helen had had a market available to her for her Miyazaki work, which the students well understood, I wondered exactly why no one had taken up Matsumoto-sensei's offering. And although it tickled over in the back of my mind until I was down at YGU and had greater opportunity to connect with the master again, it just wouldn't go. And about 2016, thanks to friends up at Akita, friends down in Tokyo, I did get the chance to pitch the idea and in principle, it was accepted by Reijisha. Of course, between that original pitch and the final book, there were many ins and outs, and nothing would have happened without Helen. So I started it, and Helen beat it into shape. Well, one, one of the wonderful things, I think, for me anyway, about a collaborative process as an editor or as a writer, is that <clears throat> you're constantly challenged to form your ideas into better shape. I absolutely love to write, but working with another writer, working with another editor, it's more like it's more like a dance. You are negotiating constantly what occupies the space, 
how it's emphasized in the space, how the space is modulated. The book becomes your stage and all the contributors to the book are your actors bringing the theme to life. And you as co-editors and co-writers are part of a, a big team. And I adore that process. I'd written several and edited several collaborative books before this one. Um, so I just was thrilled when Darren invited me to come on board because I knew that the process was going to be a really exciting one. I knew it was going to be a really difficult one too because unfortunately, although anime and manga have become much more popular and much better known in the West, we still have a very, very narrow view of what they are. It's um, more than 20 years now since I wrote my Miyazaki book. I do not understand why there are not more studies of individual auteurs and individual artists. And this is something Darren and I have talked about many times. The market has expanded, but the market for English language work has expanded more in the direction of, let's examine this from the perspective of English speaking, mostly American fandom. And so what we're essentially doing is holding up a mirror to our own perception instead of opening the door to that huge and fascinating labyrinth that waits for us in Japan. So again, for me, this was a chance to say, here's an artist who was largely responsible for the start of anime fandom in the USA with the influence of Star Blazers, but who is a stranger to most American anime fans. And that, that was just irresistible. So I'm, I'm so happy that Darren had the opportunity to bring this idea forward. And I'm really glad to have been asked on board with it. You mentioned that a lot of Western and, and Anglophone anime work focuses so much on fandom. And I have found that to be the case uh, as someone who is hoping to kind of make their way in the anime scholarship field as well. Most of the books that I read and that I find and am able to get my hands on really do focus on uh, fandom and, and in particular the English speaking fandom, which is why one of the, the contributions in the book that I really enjoyed was Ed Hoff looking at uh, anime and cosplay magazines from Japan specifically and how Matsumoto influenced those because even though we have so much history of Western fandom, which is not to say it's a complete history, there's also many, many things that are missing or incomplete or sort of obscured and it's kind of sad that those things are not getting studied either because we're losing me the people who were there on the ground when it happened. But we in the West also tend to avoid discussions of of the place that sort of birthed our interest in these things to begin with. We really do have this sort of inward reflective view, like you said. And I think that this book has really done a good job in opening at least one avenue up for looking towards Japan, not only towards one particular auteur, but looking towards how that person has influenced their home country and how that influence spreads as opposed to just looking at sort of when it arrives in America as the focal point, even though Star Blazers is one of the f main points of American fandom, you sort of don't see that as, a, as an origin point. You go further than that. And I really appreciated that in the book. Thank you. I, I think I would hazard a conjecture here regarding the issues of weight in anime scholarship. Consumption is always easier to write about than production. 
But when you throw in a 6,000 mile gap plus a language barrier and creators who are often tightly gatekeeped, as it were, then you have, even in a situation like ours, in which we had the goodwill of the master and his family, so many hoops through which to jump to even get to the interview. And then three years of negotiation to get to signing off on the right. Perhaps that is what throws up a hurdle which makes scholars say, well, let's take the more available option and look at the media in situ where we are. Mm. I, I, I get that completely. I think that's a very good conjecture to raise because if you look at it from the point of view of an American anime scholar, if they focus on the artifacts of the American anime market, there are interesting questions to be asked about how those artifacts have been modulated for the market. But there's also a huge amount of material that you don't have to spend a lot of time or a lot of money tracking down. And I know that life for people in academia is tough. Nobody has unlimited access to funding, even the superstar names don't have unlimited access to funding. Unless you speak the language yourself, which many don't, you really have to work at getting your translations authorized, your interpreters authorized, making trips. So when you have a huge field of fan studies as well as anime studies, and you can progress in that quickly and easily, I completely get why you would prefer to do that. But it, it misses out on so much. And this is just one little thing. We talk about Western fandom. We mean English-speaking Western fandom. What about Hispanic fandom? What about Francophone fandom? What about the huge South American fandom that speaks South American Spanish or South American Portuguese? What about the Arab world fandom, which has been bubbling away since the 60s, but is only just beginning to be recognized? We and what about the, the Pan-Asian, the Asian outside Japan? fandom, anime in China and how that interacts with Chinese animation, manga in Malaysia and the fight it had with Malaysian cartoonists and the Malaysian government. There's so much going on out there and it's a big and often scary world. And if you're not the kind of scholar who has time to be scared and time to be challenged, I completely get why you'd rather write a book about fan reception of a particular job of a particular character it's it's going to get you closer to tenure track it's going to get you more of what you need in your career and that's fine but i'm in the lucky position of always having been a goliad a wandering scholar a complete outlier i can take risks i can go into scary places i can do things people tell me can't be done and i've i've spent most of my life doing things people tell me can't be done and the things that can't be done are just so much more fun when you do them from my point of view that the things that everybody knows can be done even if you fail and let's be honest here I mean we're all talking we three as scholars from our different perspectives how many times have we failed more times than we've won more times than we've got it 100% right but the point of scholarship is that your failure is the foundation stone of someone else's success. So we are truly intersectional as scholars. We intersect with every other scholar all over the world in every language at every era of history. 
I can read something now, thanks to other great scholars who've done translation, who've done the digging, from a Japanese animator writing his autobiography back in the 30s about what anime was like in the 20s. And my work can build on their work and intersect with their work. Isn't that, you know, isn't that the most fun you can possibly have with your clothes on? <laughs> and that's that's something I found also very useful is in the introduction to the book, either the introduction or the preface, I, I forget which, you mentioned that there is quite a lot online about Matsumoto, but being information that's online, I don't think people quite understand, and I don't want to make this a books are inherently better than information online, but they, they exist in different ecosystems and they exist in different in different manifestations in that I, I use this example. There was an interview with Iwata who was uh, at one point worked with Nintendo and it had a lot of information in it that I found very useful. And it was a translated interview. And if you were to go to the hyperlink for that interview, it's gone now. It was stripped from the website. It vanished. Yeah. But Matt Alt in his book, Pure Invention, which we mentioned in the, the last interview, depending on when we post these interviews, the last one or the next one, it's in the Tim and Ed interview, uh, that he cites it. He cites it and he has that information that I wanted, he mentions in the book. And as long as it's mentioned in the book that has been printed multiple times and has thousands of copies and also has ebook copies, that information is no longer as ephemeral as as that interview that was published on a website and then that website going down was. And so having this book, which has been published by an academic press and has multiple physical copies out there in the world, you, it, if the book stops being printed, you could probably find it in a used bookstore or someone has it. It exists. It has ebook copies, so it also has an online presence. And that information has more longevity than something simply published online and because it has been peer-reviewed and has been verified by multiple people it's also more accurate than information that I could very easily if I had the skill make a website and then say I interviewed Leiji Matsumoto when I've never met the man in my life and if I were convincing enough of an actor I could probably pass off information have it circulated all across the globe as as accurate information and it be complete a complete fabrication. Even in my own research, I have come across things that people have said, and just because they are repeated word of mouth or typed and spread across the internet, it's taken as gospel when it isn't. And having a physical book, a peer-reviewed book, it creates a, a bedrock, a foundation to start research in. And I think when you mentioned that in the preface, it's a very short thing in the introduction, but I found that very important to highlight. Mm. external and internal consistency reliability and validity it's the foundation of any sort of work that's worth doing so so much that and and indeed we're, we're working on another project together at the moment and i've been doing a lot of work in french um one of the lovely things about working on the matsumoto book as you say was was discovering the amount of web material there is and there is an astonishing amount of work in French and in Italian on the Matsumoto web ring and, and various other things. And one of the things that, that these people who would not describe themselves as scholars do is they become very specialist. They become like the guy who can look at a diamond 
and tell you exactly what the potential of the uncut stone is, but wouldn't know anything at all about fine jewellery. They become experts in the area that they're interested in and they excavate around that area. And they give us generalists who, whose skill, I suppose, is putting pictures together, being bridges to information. They give us all these precious nuggets that we can build into our work. And that's, that's fantastic. I was lucky enough to be educated by Order of Nuns. And although I speak French so embarrassingly badly, that every time I speak to a French person, they answer me in English, even if their English is very minimal. I read French reasonably well. And that has been such a blessing because I was taught, it, um, taught Latin in a Catholic school. I read Italian fairly well if you don't ask me to be 100% reliable on verb tenses. Latin verb tenses to me are much easier than Italian verb tenses. And that, again, is a great blessing. And to any young scholar out there listening to this, I, I, I would say if you're going to have a serious career studying anime and manga or any Japanese art form and you do not study Japanese for whatever reason, you must, you really must acquire some expertise in the languages of the European nations that essentially invaded Japan on America's coattails in the 1850s to 60s. Acquire French, acquire Italian, acquire German you will have a much stronger scholarly base to build your work on. You're right. I actually have a, a good friend who, his Italian is, is rusty, but his family is Italian. He, he, uh, his parents grew up in Italy, his, his father did, and so he has a, a stronger connection to the Italian-speaking anime fandom and just the information he has access to because the Italian fan, because anime was such a, a powerful cultural force in France and in Italy and in the, the Arab world and in so many places before it was a thing in America, at least a good decade or two in most cases, their fandoms have a lot more access to Japanese culture. More, more fans speak Japanese because they're sort of a, a, head, a head start in the interest in the culture. So they began teaching themselves or taking Japanese classes far before any of us thought to. And so they have these interviews, they have ways of translating things, but they translate into their own language. They will translate into Italian or into French before they will translate anything else. And then that's a, an easier step for us, for people who speak English, to, to take a source from another romance language than it is for us to go into Japanese in many cases. Not that there isn't something lost. There's always something lost in translation, which is why I'm frustrated whenever fans do the subs versus dub debate endlessly because it's like if we all just read Derrida our lives would be just so much easier when we talked about anime fandom can you imagine if we just all applied a little bit of Derrida to anime fandom we would all understand each other so much easier if we just read complicated French theory in our daily lives but you're right there is this this international anime fandom I one thing you said in our last interview with you that I really love with it was that anime was Japan's wonderful gift to the world and it is a gift to the world and not just to the anglophone world and if we connected with each other a lot more if we if we bothered to reach out to fans in other countries and at least try to learn another language if it wasn't Japanese so much would be open to us well, this this is one area where I think Darren's been, I think he'd agree, really fortunate to work in two universities that have focused on attracting international students. Because, you know, many great Japanese universities will take some international students. 
but not all of them focus so uh, clearly on welcoming and integrating international students. And I think as a result of that, Darren, you, you've had access to students from all kinds of linguistic backgrounds. I'm sure that's been really useful. Indeed so. Every continent except Antarctica. Oh, well. I'm and sure there just... must be penguins who like Matsumoto. <laughs> no, I think penguins go more for Anno, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> But no, it, it used to be a boast of ours at Anime UK magazine that we were trying for readers on all seven continents. And we actually got Arctic readers, but never Antarctica. We were defeated by that one. Well, an Arctic reader, a guy with, with a scientific survey out there who used to get bundles of magazines between two and five months late, depending on how the weather was and how the planes managed to land. But Antarctica, yes, I think that's 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 the that's the continent that doesn't have anime fandom, at least so far. I think as a consequence of the both Akita and YGU being so open to the international student community, bred a need for popular culture studies classes that crossed the world. I still can still carry out my global pop culture survey course it doesn't just touch upon anime but everything from the marvel cinematic universe to the depths of british punk fashion it, it depends on what people are interested in it is not just anglophone it is not just modern our students given a little bit of a lead and a little bit of a rain find themselves going hither and yon it's almost as if culture to them is finally come full circle back to levi strauss's position culture is what we do it's a token of one thing isn't it yeah <laughs> and for myself this whole cultural business goes back to a, a very unfortunate experience at the turn of the the century though it, it came to painful fruition a few years later when studying for my doctorate in puppet theater not specifically in any anime related subject i did however have the strange privilege of taking tea on a regular basis with yokoyama sensei one of tezuka sensei's old friends and the master of tetsujin 28 and giant robo now, of course, at the time, he was just this nice old man, and I loved Giant Robo. But these conversations I didn't record. All these little pieces of information about the significance of robots and the, the balance between the toy market and the, his desire to create some sort of technology as a friend and a thousand other little snippets I didn't record. On the understanding, of course, that he would be there to to fill them in when I got a chance. And after he died, suddenly the lack of any recording or any information swept that ethnography out from under my nose. Hmm. I let the same thing happen with M Monkey Punch. And that was the point I decided up in Akita after Helen had been that... It, it wasn't going to happen with Matsumoto-sensei. 
too many voices are being lost, and not just in the the second generation, which is slowly fading away now, but even in the current generation, who seem to be unaware of the fact that their fans want to speak to them. Mm. It's quite a strange thing. And that their fans don't just want to speak to them about the show that they're making this minute, but about what they think about life, what they think about art, what they think about creativity. Uh, Hirohiko Araki's book on making manga has deservedly been very successful. But I think, you know, there are thousands of mangaka and animators who could write a similar volume and have it be similarly successful. It's not just because Araki makes Jojo that people want to know his views. It's because he's an artist who engages seriously with his form and has fun with it and can convey that. And if you think of the people we've lost recently, I mean, this week we lost um, Otsuka Yasuo-sensei, who was sensei to Hayao Miyazaki and Isao Takahata and generations of young animation directors who would look at um, a film like Conan and say, well, I don't know about this, but look at what Otsuka's doing with the sea who would look at Hulse and say, I don't know about this, but look at what Otsuka's doing with that sturgeon fight, and who would get really excited about his technical capability. And all those people who engaged with him are now his only voices, his only mirrors, unless outside Japan, his voice is outside Japan, some of us get down and get translating all the material on him in layer upon layer upon layer of Japanese media to capture his voice again. And that, that's, that's the other issue, that um, we are, as a dominant culture, American culture, um, American-British culture, I suppose I could say, although we have lagged far behind since, since the, the 80s and 90s, American culture is still very young. Um, as an empire, your children, you know, the Roman Empire had years to get going after being around for 250 years. You've got a long way to go yet. You're, you're just about in junior high as an empire. You need, you really, really need to encourage more people to engage with other language groups because um, American isolationism comes from this terrible lack of contact, for which there's no excuse because you have this huge, rich culture south of your southern border, which you all cheerfully exploit for, for yard work and uh, hotel maid work and that sort of thing, and which has so much more to teach you if you only bother to learn its language. So sp speaking as the inheritor of a dead empire, a long dead empire, who looks back at the scholarship of that empire in astonishment, you need more Richard Burtons. You need more people who can translate and explore and identify and record and convey to you. And we need people to translate everything available about Yasuo Otsuka so we can try and capture as much as we can of what made him so unique. I mean, it, it, again, Darren and I have a wish list of mangaka and animators that we would like to do books like this on. But it's not as easy as just saying, I'm going to write a book on X. Because as Darren said, first of all, if you want to do this with their consent and their support, which is what makes it valuable, there's a lot of negotiation to do with X, a lot of good faith to be established. Secondly, anime and manga are becoming more and more valuable commodities throughout the world. We'll have to see how the Netflix and Prime initiatives are saying, 
we don't really need everybody Japanese to make manga, do we? We don't really need everybody Japanese to make anime. Couldn't we just kind of do it American and have a little bit of input? But leaving that aside, these people have a value. And so you can have, and Darren and I had, had this experience quite recently, you can spend a long time negotiating very successfully with someone and be on the verge of agreement, literally on the verge of drafting papers. And suddenly a better offer comes in from elsewhere. And with no bad faith on either side, on any side, Mr. or Ms. X takes the decision, my work will be better served if I went with this foreign interest rather than that foreign interest. So it's very frustrating work many times. But still, you know, you've got the rest of the wish list, so you move on and you, you find the next person. I, speaking as an American, which is what a what a horrible way to start a sentence. I, I do find it very frustrating because I will say that having having had friends in European countries, uh, I have a friend I was speaking to recently. He's like, hey, I've been to France and I went to Germany once, and he, he's from England. He's like, yeah, we went to school trips. I'm like, oh, that that's that's completely beyond anything that I could imagine going to high school in America. Like, the idea of going to another country, I mean, there are trips, but they're seen as, as much bigger things. And it's not just because uh, of the way that we're situated in the world physically, but I think there is this reticence towards engaging with other cultures. We see learning other languages as capitulating to other people. They're not bothering to learn English, so why should we bother to learn their language? I, I've had a lot of people... Uh, when I told them I was taking Japanese in grad school, that they find they find that why would you want to learn Japanese? And I would tell them it's like, well, I'm very into the media they produce. I, I was sort of beguiled by it, and so I want to learn Japanese to, to engage with it more and kind of meet them where they are. And they're like, but they translate. It's like, well, yes, but not everything is translated, and everything is filtered in translation. Even the most accurate translation is is filtered, and there is this sort of centeredness that I think Americans particularly have. I was telling Ed and Tim that, you know, it's mentioned all of the, the Western influences that Matsumoto had and, and that several mangaka and, and anime directors have. And sometimes fans in Anglophone countries and, and American fans are very shocked by that. They're shocked that Batman is in Japan and that Superman and that, and that Japan has Western films come in or TV shows. Like, and I, I point to like the, the Daikon opening. It's like you have, you have King Ghidorah and, and Japanese space monsters fighting with Darth Vader. They're, they have all of these things, but there's this idea that you know, America's the, the main country and that we get things from other countries and that we don't send things out. And it's such a weird position. It's, it's both very nearsighted and very self-centered to think that, that we get art from other countries, but the art we send to them, must, they must not even think about it. Yeah, it is very weird. I mean, one of the first novels to be translated into Japanese when, when it began to westernize was the very old English children boys novel um tom brown's school days and it was only partially translated for i can't remember exactly how long but i think certainly it was translated in the 1890s i think it was about 1905 before anybody in japan understood the game of cricket well enough to translate the cricket match chapter and that's perfectly reasonable because most english people don't understand the game of cricket well enough to explain it in a foreign language <laughs> but but there is all this heritage all this residue and we say in the book 
um, and Matsumoto himself says that he, he saw so many American and European films and he heard so much European music. He's a huge fan of European classical music. And that was such a big influence on him. Art is never nationalistic, not good art. Art comes from the human spirit and it speaks to the human spirit. All the art that was made in Queen Victoria's empire and I've got to see quite a bit of the art that was made in Queen Victoria's Empire because my partner worked for a while for the Royal Collection, um, which is the, the, the Royal Family's collection of art. And there is beautiful art there that was made in every corner of the empire from the farthest reaches of India all the way across the world. And it's not talking about domination by the English. And it's not talking about resistance by whatever country it was. It's talking about the artist and the spirit of the artist, and what the artist wanted to convey at that moment in time. Art can be political, good art is always political, but art is first and foremost an expression of human spirit. And so, you know, I, I've just never found it freaky that Matsumoto would love and bond with a French actress, a German actress, in a Franco-German actress in a French film, or an English actress playing Scarlett O'Hara in an American film because he's just seeing the art. And, you know, I, I know you talked to Darren quite extensively about his, um, his love of film in general and his passion for particular actresses and particular films. And, and that, that just struck me as so human. I was very, very taken with your interview with Matsumoto Darren. I, I, as someone again, I, I've mentioned this. I am Matsumoto is a blind spot in my own anime knowledge. I, I have a very passing understanding of him. I, I I'm able to, you know, w uh, recognize a reference to him or his work. But I, this book was a an introduction really to the man himself for me, and I found your interview with him it captured him in a way I found I love his little exaggerated stories I love how you can ask him a question he goes on a completely you ask him what do you think of cosplay and he he starts talking about Vivian Lee and Gone with the Wind and how he went to America and these these two men gave him a videotape that that tells how the the long shot uh before the first intermission or the, the intermission of the film which I looked it up I was like I don't I don't know how true this is Matsumoto sensei I don't know if this actually happened but I'll take your word for it I found that very human I love that he he was a person and not just this sort of gatekeep or gatekept figure as as many Japanese creators are they sort of have these rote like I say these things and I give the polite answer and we don't really dig any deeper he he was a, a very full dimensional person in your interview, and I, I love finding out what a creator's inspirations are. I, I'm very happy to now know that Marianne de Majonesse is one of his favorite films, because now I want to watch it. I want to see what it meant to him. I want to see it through his eyes, in a way. And I also love how you connect it to yourself. You mention your own upbringing and your own personal history in relation to his work. And I really, I really appreciated that because I think ultimately what draws us to a creator is that it is someone's voice who seems to sing in the same tone that we do. It was important in the end that he be open. I too was afraid that going into the interview, he might be restricted to a certain talking point, but that was completely put to bed 
by his own family, his own wife, in fact, who was the only gatekeeper. And she just kicked the door open and said, come in. There were no taboo subjects. There were no question lists. It was, as you've seen in the book, a wonderful rambling journey through his own philosophy, which is what almost compressed my own contribution, which was going to be an examination of his philosophy and undermined my work because he'd done it for me right at the end in no better way than anyone could have done. So one thing I want to touch on is obviously you both have a, a deep connection to Matsumoto Sensei's work. If you are if you do this book, you, you have to have a great deal of passion for it. And Darren, as I've mentioned, you have a very personal connection with your own life to Matsumoto's characters and his, his sense of the world. And I was wondering if you felt comfortable exploring that or, or going into more detail about what it is that draws you, what, what drew you initially to it, and what continues to fascinate you about Matsumoto's world, about the Leijiverse. If you're talking about the deep family connection, that's really, that's more of a, a simple connection between an orphan and similar characters in something like Galaxy Express 39. But beyond that, it goes back to 1990. Remember when Rick brought up that copy of Arcadia of My Youth? Yes. Yeah. Sitting in our little convention in Sheffield, watching this space pirate waft on for hours at a time, it seems, without doing a great deal, combined with images and sounds that all seem to make a a great deal of sense, though we didn't quite know why. We'd all seen these characters before in almost every anime, but we hadn't quite grasped the fact that the man and the woman, because Miyako-sensei worked with her husband on his early work to define the beauty of his elfin characters. These had gone on to almost virally infect animation culture with their sensibilities. It was a oneness of, well, this is sound pretentious, a oneness of image, of sound, of voice. The Arcadia as a ship, yeah, drew me on. And so going off to Japan for the first time, I, I did the, the cheeky thing of attempting to find the man and kick down his door and just present myself and say, here I am. It didn't quite work like that. But having made contact in 96 and having pushed it through to 
99 and 2000. Yeah, I am a, a mildly annoying irritant to him. <laughs> but at the same time, he seems kindly disposed towards that irritation. And finally, thanks to Helen and the other contributors, I've been able to repay his generosity with something which he seems to like. A way of speaking to the world that few people have offered him before. Though in fairness, there are, as we've said, other sources out there and good sources, which we've mined for the book. But hopefully volume two, which he seems to be disposed to. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I hope to be able to take those sort of things in hand. The French, the Italian, the German, the Russian, all those other voices who have been writing. We need to bring them closer together. This is just a starting point, and I'm sure Helen will agree. Oh, very much so. I mean, one of the things that we say in, in our introduction is that we're just pushing the door open. We want people to see how much there is back there and go through that door and explore this wonderful universe. And it's, it's something that struck me when you were talking, Darren, about Arcadia, which was our first introduction to Matsumoto. My favorite movie until 1989 was an English movie called The Seahawk, starring the unbelievably beautiful Errol, Errol Flynn in one of his most unbelievably beautiful roles. And it was done during the war or just after the war to sum up what Hollywood saw as the plucky resistance of England to this mighty, overbearing empire that was trying to take over Europe and then the world. So it resonated on a lot of levels with the audience in its day. For me, what resonated was ship, sea, freedom. And I just fell in love with the idea of the buccaneer, the gentleman, or indeed the lady, buccaneer. The person who lives by their own ideals, regardless of what their society tells them. That is a description of all Matsumoto heroes. The person who charts their own path following their own star. And I think all the cultures that have fallen in love with Matsumoto in Europe have fallen in love with that aspect of his work. The French had a huge maritime empire. Pirates of the Caribbean could be directly traced back to Leiji Matsumoto if you wanted to build those links. The Spanish, obviously huge maritime empire. We spent a lot of time in the 1500s and 1600s fighting to get out from under it. The Dutch, huge maritime empire. The Germans, theirs was further north generally, but huge maritime empire. We all look at this heroic pirate and it calls to something primitive in all of us in Europe, perhaps less so in America, because you had a slightly different view of the Caribbean, the Bahamas, piracy, trade. It was a totally different experience. For you, the entry point was the Yamato, the Argo, as she was in Star Blazers. For you, the entry point was this battered and heroic battleship, which had to call up memories of Pearl Harbor this battered and heroic battleship that was going to rise with a young crew and save the world. So all that romance of the sea, and for us in Europe, all that romance of piracy, 
that's there and that calls to us. That calls to us like the sirens called Ulysses and it makes us want to get out there on that deck, spread that sail, run up the flag of freedom and just go for the horizon. It's, it's beautiful. It's mad. It's poetic. And what we would really love to do if we are fortunate enough to do a second book, if we're fortunate enough to find a second book, is get a motley crew. Get a motley crew of scholars and non-scholars and artists and practitioners and anyone who's ever responded to that basic call of Matsumoto characters and push the boat out and see what happens this time. And I think that would be so much fun. But really, for me, I want to do another Matsumoto book. Darren wants to do another Matsumoto book. If we find enough scholars to do another Matsumoto book, we'll do it. But I just want people to do more Matsumoto books. Anyone, you know, come on. Come and get us if you're hard enough. We will fight quite happily on the deck of our little galleon and be very happy to see powerful opposition with bigger guns than we possess coming up and taking over the area that we now occupy is the sole book on Leiji Matsumoto in English. We want a lot of competition. The more competition, the better. So please, anyone out there who's listening and thinking, what could I write a book on? Leiji Matsumoto, get yourself in there. Set sail. <laughs> you talk about assembling a motley crew, and that's kind of what you did with this book, too. You have a very wide range of voices contributing people who've worked in animation and comics professionally, people who are who are established scholars, people who are just beginning their publishing work. Can you can you touch a little on what it was like to assemble all of these different people for this one book? It was quite a pleasure. Each one a treasure. We were very fortunate that the individuals who stepped forward did. Originally, of course, this was put down as a biographical work and I was to be the sole author until Helen suggested a, a collaborative work. I have no idea looking back how I managed to get Tim and Zach and Ed, Jonathan, Stephanie, Undine and Matthew to, to work. It just seemed to happen. No, seriously, I, I cannot say how it happened. Tim volunteered, Zach volunteered. Maybe Helen was pulling strings behind the scene. I'm sure you'd have told me if you were, though. Oh, I would, yes. But I think what it is, is it comes from a place of love for Matsumoto. And I think all of them love aspects of Matsumoto's work. And all of them could see that here was an opportunity with a pair of editors who wouldn't put them in too tight a straight jacket. Because very often when you're contributing to an academic book, and you know this, Darren, far better than I do, there are a lot of restrictions. It's not that anybody wants to stop you doing your best work. Everybody wants you to do their best, your best work for them. Every editor wants you to be your best for them. But what they want isn't necessarily what you want. And we've both been, haven't we, through the experience of being edited and being asked to just take this bit out because it crosses over what somebody else is doing and tweak this a bit here. And we'd like to hear more of this because we want more emphasis on this subject than this subject. We, we said to people as they signed up, what we want you to do within the law, obviously, because you have to avoid libel, is what you love. And we will guide that, but we will try to avoid shaping it too much because this is your cupcake. 
you know, you go make your own cupcake and we will make sure that it fits in with the box. As a consequence, every single one of the, the, the chapters that came in has a spark of personal magic. Tim is, of course, deeply connected to the way Matsumoto's work was recreated in America. In fact, he being the artist for some interesting work, but still rooting it in an artistic, aesthetic, an approach I would not have considered in a, a, an ethnographic text. And, and Zach's even greater, focusing almost on a single sentence and creating a world of interpretive meaning around the language of the man, just as important, perhaps more important than the art. Same thing for Jonathan, fishing through the waters of a, a these days very poorly regarded set of comics, the cockpit, which should hold a higher place in the pantheon, to fish in, to fish out moments of pathos and philosophy that are often simply glossed over. Stephanie dealing with a very important issue, the elephant in the room, as it were, of the elfin beauties that are Matsumoto's women and how they stand for themselves in a world which is a universe which is otherwise perceived as male-dominated. Things which might not have been as vital if they had, as Helen said, been under a tighter editorial thumb. I think one of the things that really thrills me about this is the number of resonances that have emerged that, to be honest, and it may just be a defect in my reading, perhaps my reading is too narrow, but there are things done by the scholars in this book that I haven't seen done in any other book. It was just wonderful to see both Jonathan and Stephanie in their own way stick two fingers up to Joseph Campbell and the primacy of the hero's journey say, look, there are alternatives to the hero's journey. There are different ways that guys can do it. There are totally different ways that women can do it. Here we are, and here are two very successful examinations that don't rely on Campbell. And to me, because I have to confess, I mean, one of my dearest, dearest friends and one of my favorite mythology scholars, Crispin Freeman, is a true Campbell devotee, as many Hollywood people are. And I get why he has so much respect for Campbell. And certainly you can see Campbell's structural analysis running through almost everything ever done, certainly by guys in Hollywood. But to me, there are more interesting things to explore. And Campbell just got my goat when he made that remark to Maureen Murdoch about, you know, women don't have to ask where they are in the journey because they're the destination that people are trying to get to. That's my emphasis, women, people, but it was Campbell's words. So that thrilled me, and I, I just loved, I would love to see more non-Campbellian analyses of heroic narrative, because I think they're out there and they exist, and it's our job to uncover them. And the, the other thing that struck me so powerfully was Tim's artist's approach to excavating the layers of a text. I don't know if either of you have seen the movie The Dig yet, the Dig is it's a wonderful movie. It's about the excavation of the Sutton Hoo ship in East Anglia in Britain. Um, it's on, I can't remember if it's Netflix or Prime, but we saw it on one of them. But 
the dig was started by the enthusiasm of the woman who owned the land and a completely untrained, self-taught archaeologist who was whitewashed out of the picture for about 50 years by the shameful actions of the British Museum, an institution I love but which is not perfect. But the dig shows you the real importance of having somebody who engages with the material rather than somebody who's just a scholar. And Tim did that for me in his essay. He showed me a totally new way to interrogate a text in a way that I've never seen any other scholar do. Undine and Matthew showed me a totally new way to interrogate character. The way that they explore character and situation, the, what they bring to a text and take from a text in their cosplay is fantastic. Absolutely wonderful. Zach's poetry breaks my heart. You know, Zach, Zach is such a poet, which I know to, to, to a working translator might sound like damning with fake praise, but he has an understanding of language and a respect for language across the linguistic barrier that really works. And, and again, as, 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 as Darren said, I think that exploration of text is something that we, we hope to see more of. And my, my mind is just blown when I think about the number of people who have never bothered writing histories of cosplay, histories of anime in Japan, histories of science fiction in Japan, never bothered to read Japanese foundational fanzine texts. And Ed has just made that totally disreputable in his essay. He's essentially said, look, you know, this is here. This stuff is here. Come out and interrogate it. Uh, and I've been banging that drum for about eight years, so I'm so happy to, to have somebody with the chops to do the work actually build a foundation for me. It's been, it's been thrilling. And, and again, anyone listening to this who's thinking, I'd like to do an essay, that's what we're looking for. We want you to destabilize. We want you to radicalize. We want you to pillage. We want you to get out there and do something nobody has ever done before. And maybe it won't be perfect the first time because there are things. I mean, you, you know how it is. I mean, you both know how it is. People criticize the book they wish you'd written, not the book you actually wrote. Or maybe they criticize the book they thought you were going to write, not the book you actually wrote. But there are things in this book that if we were doing it again, I'm sure we would all do differently. But there are things in this book that were done so beautifully that I will go to my grave proud of them. And that's what I want the second book to be. I want it to be a book that isn't scared to make mistakes because it's making something bigger than its mistakes. And, and that, to me, is worth everything. So <clears throat> you, you talk about the possibility of a second book, which is very, very exciting. Uh, one thing I asked Tim and Ed is Matsumoto is still with us, thankfully, and his work is still through other hands being created. The the Lejeverse is ever expanding. Where do you see both Matsumoto's work and scholarship on his work going in the future? Where is it 10, 20, 30 years from now in your estimation? Sorry, go on, I was going to say, I think possibly you could speak to this better than I can because you're more in touch with Japanese scholarship. But what many Americans don't realize, and many Europeans come to that, 
is that Japanese scholarship on anime and manga really only got off the ground in the late 70s, early 80s, and it had a very slow start then, didn't it? This is true. For Matsumoto, however, it's a, it's a, a bit of a tricky subject. There are many books here, but they all cover the same basic ground. They recycle the same tropes because very few people have even gone to Reijisha and requested the sort of access that is needed to create something worthwhile. The company itself is clearly working towards building the legacy of the master. I think his experiences in Italy and his brush with his stroke made everyone around him aware of the fact that whether we like it or not, Tokinawa does not apply. As a consequence, I think his fondness for this particular book is an awareness of the fact that if his work is going to survive in the marketplace long term, it has to go in directions which not necess- which he will not necessarily agree with. But the first step of that is to keep the material current and keep awareness of it vital. That's very true, because looking back as he is at a career that started when he was like 14 years old, because he was out earning money at 14 years old, a career that spanned 70 years, he must be aware that all this will, well, of course he's aware that all this will very soon be out of his control. And that therefore, it might be quite fun to let it out of his control at this stage, as he has with us, because I've got to say, even given that he has a long acquaintance with Darren, he was enormously generous with us. Regisha didn't make any conditions. They didn't even insist on reading the text. We asked them to read the text. Their view was that if they were going to trust us to do a book, they were going to trust us to do it properly. And they could not have been more supportive and, and kinder And uh, Matsumoto-sensei and Maki-sensei were both so helpful. To have that kind of support is just priceless. Almost unheard of. Indeed. I have to say that when when I wrote about Tezuka, Tezuka Pro were extremely generous on the same level. But it is very, very unusual, as Darren says, for particularly for people working in a language with which most of the people in the architecture that surrounds and gatekeeps the artist are unfamiliar to get that kind of access. Because remember, even if you've studied a language pretty well, I mean, I I was taught French extremely well. My French is still very shaky. We're asking people whose everyday language is massively removed from ours to read a large amount of work in a language they don't really get and interpret it for someone else. That's a big ask. It's, you know, so, so for them to trust us to this extent is really something.
to wrap things up, you you mentioned the possibility of a, of a second volume, and at the start you mentioned you were working on other projects. Can you talk about any of the other things you have in the works, or anything that you want people to check out? Only in the vaguest terms. Mm. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, obviously for both of us, it would be an absolute dream to do another Matsumoto book, and we would obviously like to do it with the publisher who trusted us and put faith in us with this one. But we'll have to see how the sales go so that we see if it's worth their while to do another Matsumoto book. And obviously that will also affect whether or not another publisher would do another Matsumoto book. The publishing world at the moment is in that weird situation, the, the English language publishing world is in that weird situation where at the end of a global pandemic, and English is a global language, publishers have sold more books than for a number of years. I haven't seen any actual hard figures, but publishers have been having a good good year because what do you do in lockdown? You watch TV, you read. So the market out there is hungry and a number of genres and topics that were previously less desirable have become more desirable just as part of the general expansion of the market. We'll have to hope that that holds on as the pandemic fades, if indeed the pandemic fades. Um, and so that might be good for us. But the other issue, of course, is that when you have a new book out, the last thing you want is to have people holding fire on buying it because there's another one coming out soon. Mm -hmm. Because however well you explain it, people will always think, well, hold on, there's one here on Matsumoto. The second one might be better. Maybe I'll wait for the second one. So you have to wait a while to let your first book on a topic sell through in order to give you a solid base for pitching your second book on a topic. We are very open to hearing from any scholars who have a, 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 an idea at any time. We will be issuing a call for papers for a second book as soon as the time is right for doing it. But that is not likely to be this year. And with that in mind, I think I can say a little about it, and Darren will either amplify or tell me not to be so silly. Um, we are working on another book on an unrelated, non-Matsumoto topic, quite different from this one, but very close to our, our, our little fan-born hearts. It comes from our own roots in fandom, and, and we treasure them very much. And that's it's similar to the Matsumoto book in that it's a group of emerging scholars, young scholars, people who haven't published widely, who have some really interesting things to say and who are as deeply invested as we are in the topic. I think that, that was the key for me with the Matsumoto book. It was people with things to say, people who hadn't necessarily had a platform to say them before, and people who really cared about what they were saying. I hope I'm going to be pitching this one after this year. And then we have a couple of other projects, which will be personal projects, having had a setback on one of our wish list. We've gone on to number two on our wish list, and I'm not going to say who that is. But we, we have a lot we have a lot in mind, don't we? And of course Darren also, he's been very modest about it. He hasn't said a thing so far. Darren has a new book in preparation, which he might be able to talk about a little. A Japanese puppet theatre history. You know whether you'd be able to say anything or not yet. Well that's about as far as I can take it. <laughs> However that hopefully will be up next year also if, if anyone's out there try netflix you're looking for a series called the age of samurai battle for japan i strongly recommend it 
Oh, yes. I mean, your, your screen stardom should shoot with that. Dar- Darren is, is one of the, uh, the distinguished um, academics talking in, in this, this series, which is, I think they call it docudrama, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's got lots of blood on tatami. <laughs> My housewife's heart was shrieking the first time somebody bled on the tatami. <laughs> it's been described to me as... It out. Ultra violence interspersed by a crazy Yorkshireman. <laughs> that is very true. That is very true. But but so, you know, they had me at letting blood soak into those expensive mats. It's... <laughs> you mentioned what it what it took to get this book to print with McFarland, and you also tried to keep it uh, within a certain price point so that it was accessible both to scholars and to lay people. Uh, real quickly, do you think you can also touch on that a little bit? Because we will have a link in the show notes of where you can buy the book uh, to support Helen and Darren's work. And if I recall correctly, the current going price on McFarland books is about $45, which I know to some people is a little shocking, but I will tell you as someone who has had to buy academic books before, that is a very, very, very fair price. That is on the low end of what you might normally pay for an academic uh, scholarly text. Yes, 85 to 150 quid is not uncommon. Um, $45, which is what, around 35 at current exchange rates in pounds. Yeah, That's really yeah. not. And also, remember, most people who, who say, and we see this at conventions all the time, people who say, oh, my God, £25, $40, that's expensive for a book, are very often holding a stuffed um, character pillow that costs them 85 or a pile of, of videos, uh, DVDs and games that cost them even more. So it's relative. And, and in this case, the price was suppressed largely by McFarlane's own good grace on that matter, for which we must thank them, but also thanks to my old university, Yamanashigakuin University, as the president there was quite happy to underwrite a lot of the image and other costs associated with the bulk of the production. And without them, as much as without Helen, the book simply wouldn't have happened. That That is very true. And, and Yamanishigakuin were enormously, enormously helpful and very understanding. Um, YGU have, have also been extremely helpful. Um, I really can't say too much that's other than gushing praise of, of McFarland. They have been very supportive throughout every stage of the process. Um, they have very clear and very straightforward requirements, which they set out very simply. Contractually, it was really easy to deal with them. There was none of this plowing through miles and miles and miles of fine print. Everything is simply stated and simply agreed. And our editor has been utterly wonderful. Uh, the whole of the staff has been really supportive and helpful in what has been a very difficult period for them because... People tend to think, well, if you're working on a book, it's just a keyboard, isn't it, and a few images. So you can do that at home as easily as you can do it in the office. But everybody has been working under totally different situations in this pandemic. Things that normally you would walk across the room or pick up a phone and speak to a colleague about, you might now be working in a different time zone, depending where they were locked down. So they've put a lot of work into it, and they they really have done their absolute best to make it easy for us as authors, I would have no hesitation in taking another book to McFarland. 
And the, the price was important to us because as fans ourselves and as scholars ourselves, we know what it is to spend far too much on books and artifacts and other objects. So we wanted it to be at least in the ballpark figure that if you were spending at a convention, that might not be an item that you think was too much. And having walked around a lot of convention dealers' rooms, although not, I admit, since, since this pandemic started, but walked around a lot of convention dealers' rooms and priced up and seen friends price up and, and other guests price up things that they wanted to take home. I was pretty confident that uh, McFarland were going to get it for us at a price where people, they, they would complain because everybody always wants to pay less for everything, but that it would still be accessible. And of course, the ebook as an alternative is, I think it's about $18, isn't it? Something like that. So that's, that's extremely accessible. So we're, we're hoping that we're going to see this cited all over the place over the next couple of years and that it will be really nice if it triggered a wave of greater examination of Matsumoto because, don't get me wrong, I adore Miyazaki. I've been in love with Miyazaki since I saw Totoro. My heart belongs to Tezuka. I am absolutely crazy about Oshi. I can even understand why people like Anno, although that's quite a big ask for me. But could we please hear about a few different Japanese names? Could we please hear about all the other people out there whose work we haven't yet explored? And hopefully this book will encourage other scholars to look further and look at what they're citing and what they're explaining. Something strikes me when you list all these names is they're also all men's names. There are very few resources on on female mangaka that are that are available in English. I think a lot about that that horrible tweet about Naoko Takeuchi, the creator of Sailor Moon, and it's just full of misinformation. And it's just because there's so little information about female mangaka in English, and most of our the people who are covered are men. So my hope is that you know more information about women. I think that's why I really enjoyed Stephanie's piece. Is she looked at it from an angle that very few people even bother to do, which is there are there are female characters in many of these these works and they tend to go unanalyzed. Well, you are touching on something that's very close to my heart and, and that may indeed be a future project. I think of the only girl in Tokiwaso, Hideko Mizuno, who at 17 years old, left home and went to Tokyo to be a mangaka, rooming in this house that was pretty unsavory at times, very basic, no bathrooms, no, no, no private bathrooms, not much in the way of cooking material. She roomed there and she made herself a career. Her manga, Fire, was one of the most influential founding texts of the particular type of manga that many people call boys love. It was also heavily based on Scott Walker, who was an idol of mine at the time, too. So Mizuno Sensei and I have that in common. But it, it's a fabulous manga and it's not enough written about. Then she took herself out of contention for 20 years because she had a child and wanted to raise her child. And now she's back and making more manga and fabulous manga. She's a wonderful artist, but she's practically unknown. Chieko Hosokawa. Darren's heard me say that name with emphasis before. Chieko Hosokawa has written the longest running manga ever. Okino Monsho, The Seal of the King. I don't understand why Netflix haven't got it. I don't understand why Prime haven't got it. It's this great, big, rip-roaring archaeological, historical time-slip adventure 
that anyone would go gaga for. Who's heard of Hosokawa Sensei? Nobody, except a few of us and half of Japan, of course. So yeah, you, you are so right, so right, Sully. We have to get more done on women in manga and women in anime and women everywhere. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of work to do. I'm really looking forward to the next decade. Hopefully we won't have a pandemic in the next uh, decade that will that'll put a break on that. I, I don't want to rain on your parade, but do you know how long it took us to actually eradicate the Black Death in Europe? Quite a while. Quite a centuries. <laughs> I, I love it whenever there's an article that's like, oh, the Black Death popped up. It's like, it happens every 20 years at this point. Yes. <laughs> of course, we, we have got slightly better methods of control now but we also have much much faster vectors of transmission now rats no longer have to get onto a ship and wait for it to dock we just do it overnight on an airplane so that's something for us to think about well helen and darren uh helen i'm, I'm very happy to have you on again it's been wonderful and darren thank you so much for interviewing matsumoto sensei for all of your work for this book it is incredibly invaluable for anybody who wants to study anime and manga seriously it's going to be one of those texts that we're probably going to be referencing for a while if only because it is going to, it's the first of its kind and hopefully it'll be the first of of many books on matsumoto and and serious looks at his work so i want to thank you both for both the book and for taking the time out today to speak to us if people want to read your work or find ways to connect with you, uh, Helen, where can people find you? Well, I am very active on Twitter on all sorts of topics, and I'm at TweetHeart for 7-Eleven numbers. I also have a shamefully neglected blog, um, which is called A Face Made for Radio. And I really am, I'm actually in process of revamping it now because I haven't touched it for over 18 months, um, which means that the pandemic is not the excuse here. It's just my being lazy. But uh, basically, I'd rather be writing books than writing blogs. So you can certainly find me there and find how to contact me there. And I will do my best to get it up again. And Darren, where can people connect with you? Well, first of all, thank you for having, having me on, Helen. Thank you for working with me on the book. And thanks to all the contributors. Oh, yes, so much so. As for, as for myself, I'm still on Facebook primarily, Dr. Robo does, and on Instagram, the same, the same name. And we will also have links where you can purchase Helen and Darren's other books and materials, and we will have links to McFarlane Book where you can get the Matsumoto book. We will make sure that you are able to get all the material you want. I've even made sure to tell Austin that we have to have links to where you can legally watch Matsumoto Works because it's actually quite available. 2BTV actually has Captain Harlock on their website where you can watch free and legally with commercials. There's been a few things added to Crunchyroll, so I want to make sure that people don't just read Mats about Matsumoto, they're actually able to access his work so they can appraise it for themselves. The other thing that, that, that I would like to say is if you have a second language, um, particularly French or Italian, or if you don't but you have Google Translate and can allow for the gunky things Google Translate does, you can access things like the Matsumoto web ring and the Italian Matsumoto fan sources, which are utterly wonderful sources of information and people who like the things that you like. So I, I would really urge people to be adventurous, dip a little toe in, in the wide waters of, of European fandom, and you will have a really, really good time.
Helen, Darren, thank you again for being on. We will be having more interviews with contributors for this book. If you haven't listened to it yet or if it isn't out yet, we will have an interview with Tim Eldridge and Ed Hoff, and we will hopefully be having more interviews with more contributors for the book. So uh, be on the lookout in the feed for that. But until next time, this has been Sully with Helen and Darren, and uh, go buy the book. Go buy the book. You don't have an excuse anymore. Go, go watch some Matsumoto stuff. <laughs> We could not have put it better ourselves. Thank you, Sully, and thank you, Darren. Thank you both.